Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to come to your word again. And uh, as was prayed earlier, we ask that you open our hearts that we might receive this truth with joy and with conviction by your Holy Spirit that he might empower us to discern these truths about David and about you and how they relate to truths about us and our relationship with you. Uh, We ask this for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. How did she end up with him. Do you ever ask yourself that question about a couple? Or how did he end up with her? Do you ever wonder that? Am I the only one who does this? Maybe one of them is super impressive and the other one is just not. (laughs) Are you ever so struck by the disparity that you wonder what possible circumstances could have brought those two together? Maybe it was an arranged marriage? Well, if you've never asked that question before, I bet you would have asked that if you met this couple that we meet in chapter 25, Nabal and Abigail. As we will see, Abigail is top shelf, super impressive. And she's also beautiful, which never hurts. And Nabal, her husband, is an unqualified loser. But before we dig into that story, let's just consider the end of an era here in the, in the first verse of chapter 25. The prophet after whom these books, First and Second Samuel, are named has died. And it's interesting, the timing, mentioning uh, Samuel's death here in the story. But when we look at the previous passage, the end of chapter 24, it sort of makes sense. We saw in last week's passage Saul acknowledging that Samuel's judgment on him is legitimate. God had rejected him and Samuel was right. So Samuel's work is done, you might say. Saul finally accepts that David will be king. But though Saul finally recognizes Samuel's word is from God, it's too late for Saul. And while it says all Israel mourned uh, for Samuel... We can be sure that David was especially grieved. He needed Samuel's counsel now more than ever. But what we see in these three chapters that we're going to look at today 
in survey form is that David is being refined. He's being matured. He's being shaped into the anointed one that Samuel, by God's hand, had chosen. We have three full chapters to cover, or three acts in the story, as I've organized it in your sermon outline. So we cannot spend a lot of time on each, but we'll be reading a lot of the text because I can't really improve on how the stories are told. So you can follow along in your Bibles, please. Um, And we'll finish with some principles of application that we can glean from this story, this story of restraint and retreat. So act one, Nabal the fool and his wise wife. As we just read, David has gone to the wilderness of Paran. He has just spared Saul's life and is on the run. He comes to this region of this wealthy man, Nabal, who has thousands of sheep and goats. David wants some food for a feast, so he sends Nabal a message asking for a few sheep. He's watched over these sheep. He's asking for a few sheep for a feast. And at first glance, it sounds like something that could be out of the Godfather, frankly. Hey, we've protected you and your family, and now we're asking for a favor from you, because it would be unfortunate if something were to happen to them. But that, that's not really what, what's happening. It's more the case that David is simply acknowledging that Nabal has experienced blessing from David and his men, and he invites Nabal to ask these men who've been with him, don't take my word for it, David says, we've protected them and your flocks from outlaws and others. He's, he actually sends a blessing in his message to Nabal that he and all of his would be experiencing peace You wouldn't have as many sheep if we hadn't protected you, so this is your opportunity to show blessing to us with just a few sheep out of your thousands of animals. So David sort of puts himself out there as uh, the strong at the mercy of the weak, you might say, with his honor on the line. Well, unfortunately, Nabal is not only tone deaf, but very foolish. Verse 9, let's read. When David's young men came... They said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Let me just interject. He obviously knows who David is because he knows he's the son of Jesse. And as we'll see later, he also, if he knows what his wife knows, which he probably does, he also knows David will be the prince of Israel. Nevertheless, Nabal continues. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told David all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. David's honor was stomped on, and his anger was roused. And he's about to take vengeance with his own hands. If you'll forgive the pun, this is a chink in the armor. Okay, this is not the restraint that David had shown towards Saul earlier. So David still needs to be refined here to actualize his role as God's anointed one. As it is, he's marching toward a bloodbath at his own hand. Now let's pick up in verse 14. 
But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. And all the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, as he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Let me just interject again. It's very strange, in this culture especially, that you'd go to the wife. And, and, and even stranger that you'd insult her husband like this. This is clearly not the first time. Nabal's foolish behavior has warranted Abigail's management of the situation. Let's read in verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So David is just stewing on this injustice, incensed as what, as what has happened. You try to do the right thing for someone, and you get stomped on. Now there will be blood. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. That's the word. The word Nabal actually means folly or fool. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from the blood guilt, from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good he has spoken concerning you, amazing, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Wow. So David, who is hell-bent on bloodshed, is confronted by literally a Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of noble character, humble, tactful, shrewd, 
wise. Look at how she softens her intervention with gifts, bows with humility, takes responsibility, words of absolute respect and acknowledgement of his power, even taps into the promises to David, this is remarkable, and his future as prince over Israel. And, and she subtly warns David that his behavior he's planning would be conduct unbecoming a king. Just brilliant speech and wise. And just a side note, note that wisdom doesn't always have time to think back, to, to sit back and think carefully about things. Normally we say, don't act quickly, instead be wise. Well, that's frequently appropriate. But in this case, Abigail had to act very quickly because to do nothing or even to wait and think too long would mean certain bloodshed. So her wise actions clearly flow from the character she's already developed. So she knew immediately what to do. If we're humble and wise, like Abigail, as the Lord teaches you, develops you, trains you through various means, he prepares you for wise action in the future, action that sometimes needs to happen very quickly. And note that Abigail already knew that David will be prince over Israel, just accentuating the the foolishness of Nabal's response. Just a side note, wouldn't it be interesting to watch a Marvel movie on the origin story of Nabal? (laughs) To have your parents name you fool. I mean, that's quite something. Though to be fair, many scholars think this is a derivation of a name that was assigned later because of his character. But either way, I think that would be fun to see. So in light of Abigail's incredibly well-executed intervention, David, by God's grace, relents. As Dale Ralph Davis says, Abigail is the Lord's stop sign, mercifully placed in David's path. Listen to verse 32 and following. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. You who have kept me from this day from, from the blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as, surely as the, for as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. David basically repeats Abigail's words, agreeing that she's totally right. So again, we see God refining his anointed one here. Learning yet again, although in a new context now, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Okay, should not be taken into one's own hands. This is what the greater David, Jesus Messiah, showed us on the cross, didn't he? 1 Peter 2.23. But when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. David had this attitude with Saul in the last chapter, leaving things in God's hands, but was blinded to that principle here with Nabal. He needed to see it yet again in another context to drive this principle into his own character. Furthermore, I think this is, a, this is a really good lesson. There's some good insight here. For those of us with a temper, David is expecting conflict with Saul. 
Okay, he's very patient, collected, measured, anticipating. His attitude and reaction, he was guarded. But here, where he's not expecting an insult to his character and generosity, he's triggered because he wasn't guarded. I think this explains why we can be so long suffering in the office, in our job, dealing with people, bathing ourselves in prayer with the anticipated conflict, just ready for those moments, and then come home and blow up at our kids for some little thing because we're unguarded, we're unprepared, susceptible to overreacting to an insult. This was an unexpected offense, not from the current king, which he was prepared for, but from a nobody who should be bowing down to David, but instead insults him, and hence the overreaction and near disastrous blood guilt. Lots to learn for many of us here. But credit David here, and credit certainly the Holy Spirit, as he listens to Abigail. We'll talk about this later, but unlike Nabal, David is teachable. This is so important as a leader, as a Christian, as anyone. He's not stubborn. He's called out, think about this, by a relatively insignificant person, a woman, a homemaker with no title, doesn't matter who. David sees he's in the wrong. He agrees, he owns it, he relents, he learns, he thanks for the rebuke. Wow. Critical for his character development as a leader. He's also learning that violence begets violence. I mean, there's personal restraint, however, makes a way for God to do his work. Now, the remainder of chapter 25, we won't read it all, but just to summarize, we learn that Nabal has a night of binge drinking and who knows what other vice. Abigail waits until he's sobered up to tell him what happened, and when he hears it, Nabal has something like a stroke, and then he dies less than two weeks later, demonstrating the truth, leaving vengeance to God's hands. If God wants to take someone out, I mean, it's very easy for him to do so, and he does here. So again, David learns to entrust justice to God, and then Nabal's widow, Abigail, becomes David's wife. Now let's consider Act 2. Saul, the attacker, spared yet again. Let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Let's skip down to verse 5. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So here's the situation. Number of parallels In this chapter with the episode that Bentley preached last week, chapter 24, in the cave. Here's some things that are the same. Saul finds out where David is, pursues him with thousands of men. David has an opportunity to kill Saul. Others try to convince David to do it or let them do it. David refuses because of his profound respect for the Lord's anointed king. And at the end, Saul admits his guilt to David. All those things are the same. Same song, different verse. Saul is unchanged, unfortunately, from the last episode. At the the, the end of chapter 24, Saul vindicated David of treason. He seemed to have a change of heart. So you might think Saul would leave David alone. 
not so. Sin is not rational. It doesn't make sense. David seems to have a good appraisal of Saul's sinful nature. He knows that Saul, his seemingly humbled actions and words earlier in the cave were superficial and not indicative of a genuine change in Saul. In the present case, Saul and his commander, Abner, are sleeping with a ring of soldiers surrounding them. Let's read in verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went into the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now here's where we see some development in David. Because of the Nabal incident, David's experienced and learned from that. He's more convinced than ever to let God avenge him, not to take matters into his own hands. Listen to this, though. Verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he'll go down into battle and perish. Did you notice that? David has learned that when God's timing comes, as it did with Nabal, when it comes in Saul's life, it will happen. There are any number of ways God can do this. And he even gives some examples of what might happen. But David knows it is not for him to avenge. Leave it to God. Verse 12. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So the Lord sovereignly caused Saul and his army to sleep deeply and not wake up as this is happening. Again, just like in the episode with Saul in the cave, we see God actively involved in David's rise to power. We we should not read this story like, hey, Abishai and David are so talented at, at stealthily going through this camp without anyone noticing. Amazing, no. The author makes very clear this is a supernatural protection right here. God is very involved. Verse 13. And David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you that calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over our Lord the King? If David was in the NFL, he'd get flagged for taunting here. (laughs) For one of the people came in to destroy the King, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now we see the King's spear in the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. 
But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. Verse 21. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. Down to verse 25. Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. David and Saul never saw each other again after this. Now David has heard similar speeches from Saul in the past, hasn't he? And he knows that Saul, despite what he says, is unchanged. Saul cannot be trusted. He consistently goes back to pursuing David, so David becomes tired of running like a fugitive throughout Israel, and that brings us to our third act, chapter 27, Philistia, the last resort. Then David said in his heart, let's just read this first verse, now shall I perish one day by the hand of Saul? There's nothing better for me that I, that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David is tired of running like a fugitive. He knows Saul's nature. Once again, he goes to the land of the Philistines like we saw back in chapter 21. I'll just summarize the rest of the chapter this way. The Philistine king of Gath is obviously an enemy of Israel in general, an enemy of King Saul in particular, yet he welcomes David. So he's sort of following the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And David successfully negotiates with the king of Gath to take all his soldiers, women, and children and settle in their own town in Philistine territory, keeping them separate from the pagans. David and his army then go into battle against enemy nations of Philistia, which are also enemy nations of Israel. Now remember, there are those in Israel who would be critical of David for living here in Philistine territory. So he's trying to make this a win-win situation. He's fighting against the enemies of the Philistines, so the king of Gath is happy. And he's fighting against Israel's enemies, impressing the people of Israel as well. Now, was this a good move for David? That's the million-dollar question. And this is, a cha- this is the challenge of reading narrative uh, genre in the Scripture. We have to remember with narrative like this, it's, it's, it's descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. In other words, the author is describing what, what happened, what David did. He's not necessarily saying God approved of what he did. So we have to look for clues in the text And in some cases, like this one, it's not always clear. In fact, just researching this, scholars and commentators are pretty equally divided on this particular passage. Some say, hey, David sees an open door. He takes it, uses his judgment. God honors it. Successful negotiation with the king of Gath. He's able to maintain separation from the Philistines, sort of, with his own own town. He's also defeating residual enemies left after Joshua. Good stuff, right? Others say, well, not really. He didn't trust the Lord. He should have stayed in Israel. It's never honored in Scripture to take refuge in a pagan nation. Well, that's a good point, too. At a minimum, we need to be sympathetic to David's situation. He's in a tough spot. And as I thought about this, 
Rather than picking sides, I'd rather just remind us that David is more like us than we think, and his situations are more like ours than we think. Certainly he has a unique role, and God is dealing with him in a special way. But at the same time, he's not getting direct words from God on what to do in every situation. Because sometimes we can think, you know, these biblical characters, they had it so much easier because God told them exactly what to do. Well, actually, no. Look at the verse again. David said in his heart, he's talking to himself. Now, shall I perish one day by the hand of Saul? There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. David thinks to himself, Saul hasn't changed. I'm going to get killed if I stay in Israel. If I get out of Dodge for a bit, he'll get tired of looking for me and I'll be safe. But this is hard. You got women and children here too. He, he cannot seek counsel from Samuel anymore. He's dead. He's talking to himself and thinking over what seems like a no-win situation. Who can relate to that? I sure can. <laughs> I'm talking to myself all the time, thinking things over. What should I do in this situation? Of course we pray for guidance. Okay, but I don't know about you. I'll just speak for myself. Rarely, God just opens one door very clearly. Okay, usually, you know, we have the principle, of course, we never want to disobey the clear teaching of Scripture, that's for sure. But most of the time, we have to use our God-given instincts and reasoning ability to make an informed decision based on the data, the best we can. And I, for one, appreciate that David can relate to that. So maybe in this instance, rather than either critiquing David or praising David for his decision. Maybe this time it's better just to relate to David. He's in a tough spot. He doesn't know what to do. He thinks it over, and he goes to Philistia. He takes this action, and it seems to work out. Okay, with the remainder of our time, I want to think through a few areas of application, and the first one is this. Be teachable. Be Teachable. One of the remarkable things we see in this story of Nabal and Abigail is David's teachability. After exercising such restraint with Saul, as we've seen throughout, including last week, David almost destroys his credibility as God's chosen king by annihilating Nabal and his household. His anger was flared. He was hell-bent on bringing his own vengeance on Nabal. And he's the anointed one who had the unwavering support of his military. Yet, he's confronted by a woman, someone who by her status and place in this culture had no business challenging him. But David humbles himself and listens to her rebuke. He accepts her correction, even thanks her for her rebuke. Because he knows, he sees, he perceives, he's teachable. God's using her for his own moral formation and development. His teachability in this story is a model of discipleship for all of us in Christ. It's one thing for, you know, you have an authority confronting you about something. But even then, those who are foolish like Nabal aren't even teachable in that case. But when your peer or someone subordinate to you challenges you, are you teachable? Are you open to rebuke? It's one thing when my boss or one of my pastors confronts me. What about my wife? What about my children? Am I willing to listen and be teachable 
from my own kids. Like David in this story, are we willing to accept criticism or rebuke from someone we might perceive as having no authority to criticize us? We're so obsessed with our position or authority that we bristle in stubbornness. Husbands and fathers can easily, especially, fall into this trap, thinking that their role as the leader of the household means they can't be challenged or criticized. That's not a sign of strength or maturity. It's a sign of insecurity and lack of maturity. Remember a great story, humorous story, about a state governor 50 years ago or so, who was driving and stopped by a random church picnic and got in line for the food. When he came to the chicken, he asked the lady who was serving uh, for an extra piece. And to his surprise, she said, no, it's just one piece per person. (laughs) And the man said, ma'am, it's possible that you don't know who I am. I'm the governor of this state. And the woman replied, well, sir, it's possible that you don't know who I am. I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. (laughs) I love that story. When you have a leadership role, the temptation in a leadership role is to not only take a high view of the role, which is good, but also to take a high view of yourself, which is bad. David was teachable. He humbled himself to receive criticism and rebuke from this woman. And it saved him. Think about this. It saved him from a disastrous action that would have undermined his path to God's kingdom. Think about that. We also need to humble ourselves and be teachable, willing to learn from and accept criticism and rebuke, even from those we might not think have the right to criticize you. It just might save you from disaster. Because God will use them in your own discipleship and growth. So let's listen carefully to rebuke and be teachable. Letter B, exercise faith in God's guidance. As we've seen over and over, David is trusting the Lord, but it's not always clear how God's guidance works. In the previous example from chapter 25, we see one way we exercise faith in his guidance is to be teachable. Again, to trust that he uses others to point out when we might be on the wrong path. This is essential. Okay, to make corrections accordingly. That's critical. In chapter 26, David continues to trust the Lord and apply the lesson reinforced with the Nabal incident, that he should not take vengeance in his own hands, but to trust the Lord to avenge. As Ben Lewis noted a few weeks ago, this is right out of the teachings of Jesus that we see applied from David toward his enemies. We see this as the reader, maybe what David didn't see in the moment, that God was sovereignly working to protect him by causing the sleep of Saul's army. David can't control that. But what he can control is walking in the truth, what he knows about God, and entrust justice to him, not taking matters into his own hands. As Philip says, David's reward for his good faith and obedience to God's word was not relief from Saul's malicious pursuit, but rather a clean conscience before God and a resolved faith that God will vindicate. As Christians, we should all have that same goal. You see others at work getting ahead by being dishonest, throwing people under the bus. Don't retaliate in kind. The Lord knows. 
Okay, don't look for the easy way out. Seek the peace that comes from doing the right thing before the Lord, trusting him for justice. We can be certain, of course, that his guidance will never cause us to act in a manner uh, contrary to the scripture, contrary to his word. So we never want to do that. In chapter 27, we see something very relatable, I think, in David as it relates to divine guidance. He's unsure what to do. He's where many of us find ourselves from time to time between a rock and a hard place. He uses his God-given reasoning ability to make a decision and move forward. He no longer has Samuel to talk to, but note that he's not just paralyzed waiting for a sign. I think this is important. He makes an informed decision and acts on that decision. Okay, as Arnold says, listen to this. I think this is really important for our growth. As we grow and mature in our faith, We also become more confident about God's guidance. And we spend less time seeking constantly for evidence of his moving. I think that's really good. And when David does make that decision, he continues to take actions consistent with God's previous word concerning the neighboring enemies of Israel, both in warfare against them and keeping God's people separated from the pagans. He waits patiently for God to deal with Saul in his own timing. Cause and effect. God's moving, but we see him work things out. You may have uh, heard the story about the mice in the piano. The story asks you to imagine a family of mice who live all their lives in a large piano, just as we live our lives in our part of the world. The mice could hear the music of the instrument in their piano world, and at first the mice were very impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music, though invisible to them, yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. Well, one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He had discovered how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of graduated lengths that trembled and vibrated. All the outdated beliefs of the mice must be revised. Only the most uneducated still believed in the unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were now the secret. Numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical, mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth. And the story concludes with one brief sentence. But the pianist continued to play the piano. (laughs) We live in an age of astounding scientific discoveries, telescopes that can now penetrate exponentially further than was ever imagined. But if all we walk away with from those discoveries is an appreciation of the beauty and symmetry and magnificence of what we can see with our eyes, we miss the true beauty and majesty of the ultimate cause, our creator and sustainer who works all these things for his glory. This is the God who guides us, brothers and sisters, who works in our lives. We may see with our eyes one event which caused another and led to another and led us to where we are today, but let's remember the ultimate cause, the one behind all causes for his own glory and for the good of those who love him. One scholar said this, God writes straight 
in crooked lines. Only looking backwards at your life can you see how God led you. It seems so crooked at the time. But what seems crooked to us, he will make straight. Trust him for your guidance. Finally this morning, accept the greater David's proposal to you. When Abigail met David, she understood that his judgment was coming upon her household. She also understood, as we see in her speech, that she understood the promises of blessing that were coming to David himself. She said to David, and when the Lord has done to you according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, when the Lord has dealt well with you, then remember your servant. She believed the promises the Lord had made concerning David, and she believed David's power to save her and bless her. And she humbly asked him for mercy. And David not only showed her mercy, but later invited her to become his wife, to enter into the most personal and intimate relationship with him. And she accepted his proposal If you're not a Christian, know this. God's judgment stands over all of us for our wickedness, our foolishness against him and his rule. We need his mercy. And there are great promises God made concerning David's great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Promises of salvation which have now come through his life, death, and resurrection. So please humble yourself before him. Ask him for his mercy and believe these promises. This greater David, Jesus, invites you to enter into the most intimate, personal, and eternal relationship with himself. Would you please accept his proposal? Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, you're so good to us. You're so merciful. I thank you for the life of David. We thank you for all the things we can learn from him, from the things he did well, from the things that he did wrong, and from your great mercy toward him and your protection and sovereignty over his life. We know that this same God guides us, and we're so thankful for that. We pray that we would not waver from your word, but would trust the wisdom and discretion you've given us to make decisions in our life, knowing that you are sovereign and guiding us accordingly. Lord, for those here who do not know Jesus in this way, who have not had this intimate relationship established with him, may they repent of their sins. May they turn for your mercy in his cross, taking all that sin and punishment upon himself in the glorious power of his resurrection to life. May they experience that today and experience the relationship with you that is beyond words for eternity. For Jesus' sake, amen.